Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Dr. Robert Marvin for part one of their discussion on research and clinical applications of attachment theory. I am so, so excited. I can hardly contain myself about today's guest. He is going to be very familiar to many of you. He is a giant in the field of attachment research and clinical application as well. Sometimes we find that folks who do research have not been as involved in clinical application of attachment theory but my guest today has done both. So I'm gonna give you a bit of background information before he joins us today. My guest today is Dr. Robert Marvin. Dr. Marvin was an undergraduate student and research associate with Mary D. Ainsworth at the John Hopkins University. Okay, like if I stopped the bio right there, that would be so like unbelievably impressing and exciting. Uh, Just that in and of itself that this man actually worked with Mary Ainsworth. But anyway, let me continue. He received his PhD in developmental and clinical psychology from the University of Chicago in 1972. After completing a postdoctoral fellowship at the Institute of Child Development at the University of Minnesota, he began teaching at the University of Virginia, where he's currently Professor Emeritus in the School of Medicine and Research Professor in the Department of Psychology. He's also the Director of the Mary D. Ainsworth Child Parent Attachment Clinic in Charlottesville, Virginia. Throughout his career, Bob has been active in basic and clinical attachment research and in intervening with families who have children with chronic medical conditions and or histories of disrupted early relationships. This work has led him to focus increasingly on developing clinical tools for assessing and intervening with families of foster and adopted children and with families experiencing divorce or other types of parental separation. What I want to share next is what uh, Dr. Marvin may be known to some of you for, and that is uh, his work with Circle of Security. From 1998 to 2006, Bob was the principal investigator on federally funded projects that developed and tested the Circle of Security version of attachment theory and the Circle of Security Intervention Protocol. Currently, he is especially active in implementing implementing, excuse me, variations of this circle of security framework in developing community-based partnerships among professionals working with families and at-risk children. These include children at risk of removal from foster and adoptive families, children of divorce, families who have had children with chronic medical conditions, and parent-child relationship challenges related to trauma. Dr. Marvin travels extensively to train professionals in implementing science-based practices and in integrating developmental psychology, clinical psychology, and family systems work. So it is going to be a real treat for us today to talk with Dr. Marvin and he'll be coming right up. 
Attachment Theory in Action, a training workshop from the Knowledge Center at Chaddock, supports the work of therapists and clinicians in attachment-based care. This two-day seminar features Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Josh Carlson. Register now for the Charlotte, North Carolina workshop to be held on February 21st and 22nd of 2020. Visit tkcchaddock.org for additional 2020 dates in Seattle and Phoenix. Okay, here we are again with Dr. Bob Marvin, beginning to look at circle of security. We've been talking about the evolution of the ideas that contributed to this and Dr. Marvin's history um, in his work. And, and so where does this bring us up to right now with, with what you can share with us next? So, so that, that, where we where we just left off a couple of minutes ago was um, the next phase in the development of the circle um, was um, having having uh, um, made some real progress in uh, developing a this user friendly model. Um, the next thing I was really interested in uh, was developing ways of in a short period of time because these families were coming from all over the Commonwealth of Virginia and uh, um, on the faculty in the Department of Pediatrics, you can't, you can't really take on a client in therapy, whether it's a family or, it's hard to take on a client in, in therapy, whether it's an individual or a family, adult or child, and see them once a week for 50 minutes and um, for over a period of a year or so. So the, I became very focused on how can we intervene here in a in a um, in a very short period of time and make a difference. Um, so I spent another few years working on developing uh, taking this user friendly model, which is a version of attachment theory, and and trying to develop intervention strategies, intervention protocols, based on that user-friendly model. Um, and I was doing all kinds of little pilot projects and that sort of thing. And then by this time, it's like 1997 or eight. And um, I went out to Seattle to a conference and Mary Ainsworth was there and a number of her other students were there and we had we did a symposium actually it was a symposium in honor of mary and afterwards this guy came up to me who was a clinician from spokane by the name of kent hoffman um he he came up to me and said i am really excited about your work um can you would you be interested in um um, um having some telephone based consultations with myself and my two colleagues, and we're all interested in the same, the same kind of things. I said, sure. And so we did. So we, we had a number of consultations, and then it went from there to them inviting me out to Spokane, and we were doing, we were, uh, we developed and um, held a, a lot of workshops for clinicians in the community, um, in, the, in the community around Spokane. They had been doing this out there, amazing three guys, um, um, have been doing this for a while. Uh, and in the context of doing that, of course, because you have 
you know, I'm up there lecturing and showing videos of kids and parents all day. But then in the evening, of course, we, we, the, the four of us hung out together. And of course, we can't stop talking about attachment and where we might be able to go from here and decided. So no bourbon and cigarettes, but you were talking about attachment. <laughs> no, by that time, by that time, I had um, none of them smoked and I had, I had basically quit by that time. And we shifted from bourbon to good red wines. Okay. <laughs> um, and of course, we had all of our best discussions after. Yes. Well, anyway, so, um, we decided that uh, they got very excited about what I've been doing and said, we, we, we would like to be involved in developing um, a, uh, a, a, an intervention protocol using this user-friendly model. This is really interesting. And I said, great, I, I work so much better with, a, with other people than I do by myself. So we started doing, um, we started doing some um, pilot projects. Um, it started off being, we were doing this using, in a sense, family therapy as the basic intervention paradigm. And we were plugging this user-friendly model into family therapy. At that time, it was structural family therapy a la Salvador Mnuchin. Um, and we, we kept playing around with these ideas and developing, developing um, um, more details of the intervention and decided, okay, let's get a grant. Let's see if we can get a federal grant and, um, and see if we can do this with the support of a federal grant and really do it right. Yes. So we got a grant from, um, from NIH um, and I was the, I was the, um, principal investigator on that. These were, these three guys were all amazing clinicians, um, but they were, they were not, they were not academically based and didn't have the, the sort of the research background. Um, but boy, could they, could they put ideas together? So the four of us, we had so much fun. It was a 12 year adventure that we had together um, developing the surplus security and testing it out um, in two separate projects uh, with high-risk families. These were, um, and we decided to use, um, we decided to use kids in Head Start. Okay. Okay. And and just for the listeners, would you like to mention the the names of the other two? Yes. So there's there's Kent Hoffman and Glenn Cooper and Bert Powell. Okay. And they have gone on since when, when we sort of took different paths in about 2007, something like that, 2010. Um, it sort of happened gradually. Um, and I'll come to that in a minute. But so we, we, um, we developed the model, the intervention model. And so the circle of security actually refers to both the user-friendly model of attachment and the actual intervention, the circle of security intervention. And when it's done right, it's always done with an evaluation beforehand, as, or as the first phase in the intervention, is you do an evaluation. Mm -hmm. um, and we use strain situation um, and a number of other procedures, including um, uh, a, the adult attachment interview with some of the questions taken out um, in order to shorten that up because we didn't want to make the evaluation 
last the whole day for these families. Yes. So we, we used the adult attachment interview in the intervention, I mean, in the um, evaluation. And that I still do. I still use that whole assessment protocol. We start off with the assessment and then we move on to the intervention. And the intervention then happens in a, a, a series of five additional phases. Um, I don't know that there's time to go into it right now, but you can read you can read our book, yes. Social Security, yes. or, or um, give me a call and we can talk on the phone. I'm saying this to the, to the <laughs> yes. Um, well, you well, have and you have a, you have a great website. You have so many handouts. You have your books. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so. Um, and so we, we, we did the evaluation before the intervention and then during the intervention, I mean, and then, then had the intervention and then did the evaluation again at the end of the intervention, which when you have a federal grant, you have the money to be able to do that, but you, yes. don't, you don't have a federal grant. Yes. So it was a pre-post study. That was the design. And we found there was a huge shift um, from because kids in Head Start, as a population, about 80% of them tend to have disorganized attachments. That's huge wow. to the general population. It depends wow. on the particular Head Start um, and the particular community, but it, it can be up that high. It's anywhere from you know, 40, 50% up to like 80% disorganized, whereas in the general population, it's more in the range of 15%. Okay. Um, and it shifted, um, most of these attachments were shifted from disorganized to um, one of the organized models, either secure or avoidant or, um, or ambivalent. But what that also means is that your AAI data was showing a lot of unresolved issues in the mothers. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, and the intervention really, so we videotape everything that we do. And then the intervention is all based on reviewing. It's a bait. It's a combination of reviewing videotapes from our archive, our archives of videotaped um, parent child interactions from parents who've given us, been brave enough to give us permission to use them. Mm -hmm. We don't want to start off with the videotapes of that particular dyad because that can be too too threatening to the parent. Interesting. So, yeah, so we do. Uh, there's a real psychoeducational phase. At, well, the first phase is 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 developing a therapeutic contract um, to develop a, um, a a real strong relationship, um, almost an attachment between the parent and the therapist, and then we do the psychoeducational phase which is focusing on teaching using videotape and discussion um, teaching the parents about attachment theory using the user-friendly model and watching videotapes and um, helping parents develop a, a, a keener eye for for um, watching signals from little kids and being able to make accurate inferences about what's going on in the kid and then the next phase is we shift to focusing on the child of that parent reviewing videotapes of the child and helping the parent learn how to better read 
her child's cues and make inferences about what the child needs from her in that moment. And then, and then the fifth phase is we focus on the parent and what gets in the way of the parent. And it's almost always some kind of trauma um, uh, the, to the parent that has gone unresolved. Um, You'll, and and you'll have to talk about the concept of shark music and how that came in. That that you saying that reminds me of that. Exactly. So so one one way to think about this, this is this is this is a little bit. Um, it's not as simple as what I'm about to say, but sort of the user friendly version is. We really believe the parents are wired just like a baby is wired. Parents are wired um, through evolution to know how to be a good parent. Mm -hmm. In our hearts and, and whatever parent you're working with, um, our view is that um, however traumatized they may have been, however abusive or neglectful or whatever they have been as parents, their heart's in the right place. They want to do right. Do good. Um, I, love, I love that. There's their, their own. Th this goes back to the AAI and the notion that one of the most important parts of the AAI was Mary's Mary Maine's um, section on loss and trauma. And the question, the series of questions that are, that follow up on whether you ever experienced a loss of a loved one, like your mom, for example, um, um, has a child, <clears throat> um, or some other trauma, uh, relationship trauma, um, um, in addition to, or rather than, or in addition to loss of an attachment figure. <clears throat> um, and, and then you know, all these follow-up questions and you rate, this is from the AAI, you rate the degree, in a sense, of lack of resolution regarding that trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, if you are, if you reach the criteria to be classified as unresolved, if you want to call it that, um, the likelihood of you having a disorganized, your baby, your child having a disorganized attachment is very, very high, very high. If you are classified as resolved, then um, the impact on your parenting is, is close to all essentially the same as never having had, had had that trauma in the first place. So it's not about having been traumatized. It's about whether or not you were resolved or unresolved. Yes. So these moms, the moms who were, um, the, the kids who were um, um, disorganized, either as babies or as they get up into the older age group, which was part of this original circle of security project, we saw kids between the ages of about one year old and um, uh, five, four and a half or five, five and a half years old. Um, so it's either disorganized as an infant or as the kids get older, that's when you get into the kids who used to be disorganized as a baby. They get to be three, four, five. Um, and 
that disorganization, of course, changes as the kid's development changes. And these are the kids who, who develop into children who are role-reversed, controlling, and either very caregiving or very punitive toward the parent. And also, a lot of them obviously turn into kids who have a DSM diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder or, or, um, um, or separation anxiety disorder, a number of the, the, the DSM classifications. And so we would work. So what we did was we end up working with the mom. We don't see the child. After we do the initial evaluation of the child, we, never see, we don't work directly with the child. We work with the parent because the parent's the one who's got to help the child change. Yes. Our job is to help the parent help the child. And we have a relationship with the parent that has the same components as we want her to have in her relationship with her child. Mm -hmm. So it passes. It's like hands. If she needs to be the child's hands, she needs somebody who is her hands. And that's the therapist. Right. When she has that experience and lives within that experience, she's then able to take it and apply it to her child. Mm-hmm. Also, in a very guided way, lead her to um, doing that. So it's not just you can have a good relationship and you can pass it on to your child. It, it, it's more than that. Yes, when I think, you know, it was Selma Freiberg who said, we must be for the mother what we desire her to be for her child. And so that seems to make so much sense with what, what you were doing. I guess my big question mark is, you know, they, these, um, I know they were high risk moms. Some of them had been in foster care themselves. You're seeing uh, disorganization slash unresolved issues. What, what do you do that, that may, and, and there's the psychoeducation component, which I think many are familiar with and, and the great resources for that and the drawings and all of it, it makes it so accessible. But what do you think really changed? The, was it just everything or, or what do you think, what, what stands, you know, cause these are women that could have been in therapy for years and years and years and years and you know, or, or individuals or parents or, or, or some of us, we have all this baggage and we're in therapy for years and it doesn't really seem to take or whatever, you know, what do you say? Like, how did you have these results? Well, that question has many, many layers. <laughs> it does. <laughs> um, Can't you just give us so, three? So I can, yeah, I can, I can, I, I, I can tell you some of the real keys are, reviewing videotapes of you and your child when your child is on the bottom of the circle, when your child is upset. Yes. And you watch the videotape of your, you and your child when your child is upset and needs you. And you, and you watch that same video over and over and over again and in slow motion and sometimes frame by frame, you start to develop much more ability to see things quickly um and and as you as the parent is getting to see what's happening with the child and understanding that that facial expression on the child really means that he's scared for example yes rather than he's just trying to get his way and is angry with me Mm, yes um you see you help her see he's scared and then once she can really see that and is no longer 
if you want to think of it this way, distorting the child's cue mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or signal, mm-hmm. then, then she's able to think more about what he needs and start to give him more of what he needs from her at that moment, rather than misinterpreting, yes. making a negative inference about his behavior and then reacting from the point of view of that negative inference. Right. Which, of course, you're going to do the opposite of what the kid needs, probably, or something like that, to um, really making a more accurate inference. Now, in addition, the parent starts to realize, wait a minute, but look what I'm doing there. So she starts to see not only, um, not only is he doing, my kid doing this, but look at what I'm doing. I shouldn't, and, and she's reviewing the videotape from mm-hmm. a strange situation. I shouldn't be doing that. And we say, oh, well, let's talk about that some more. Because we don't lecture to the parents. We don't educate the parents about their own relationship with their kids. What we do is we scaffold them to discovering it themselves. Mm-hmm. They learn so much better. And that's where some of the, that's where so much of the, when we teach somebody how to do the circle work, the supervision that we do with a therapist, so much of that supervision is focused on how do you scaffold Yes. rather than tell the parent. Right. How do you scaffold the parent to making the discovery herself or himself? Yeah. Because also then this is also much lower risk of triggering defensiveness in the parent and shame in the parent. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and when, so this gets back to the notion of shark music. So what is, what is shark music? Shark music is um, when, when, okay. It starts with a notion that Mary Main discovered, which is, uh, one of her genius discoveries, um, one of her many, um, that that if I am unresolved about some trauma to my attachment system back when I was a kid, mm-hmm. I, and it's, it's not resolved, what I've done is just sort of tuck it away. Mm-hmm. Or, or I, I, I miscue myself or I ignore the feelings and I, I, I stay unaware mm-hmm. of what, what happened to me and how it is impacting me now. And that's where defenses come in, in the yes. sense that when my, so I grow up and of course the, the caregiving system is somewhat different from the attachment system, obviously. Yes. They're different. But the caregiving system really evolves out of the attachment system. Yes. So when, if I had to shut down my attachment system as a kid because of mm-hmm. trauma, yes. loss, when I get to the age where I'm ha- I have my own kid and my child's attachment behavior is activated and he needs me to welcome him in and soothe him and take charge of him and that sort of thing, that activates my caregiving system. Yes. Which in part is activating all the old, speaking of Selma, Freiburg, ghosts, ghosts in my nursery. Yes. My reaction to that reactivation, that's sharp music. Yes. And it is so painful for parents 
to have to to have all of those feelings come out into the open in the present as I'm trying to take care of my child. That it just it it's very painful and it disorganizes them and they don't yet they don't really have a strategy for how to deal with it. So our job is to help them by the video review recognize oh look at what i'm doing there why am i doing that and so we yeah yes i'm curious yes. about it too mom yes and how how do you think watch yourself again how do you think you felt in that moment hmm. how yeah. do you feel now thinking about watching yourself yes and so and and she starts to get scared and at that point we welcome her in and we help to soothe and reorganize and wait till she's back until she feels taken care of by us in that in that emotional way. Mm. So now again Beautiful. she starts to explore her own pattern of parenting. Yes. And it's a gradual process. Yes. So it's real it is real psychotherapy. This is not parent education. It's not psychoeducation. It is real mm. psychotherapy. Yes. And, and it's it has a lot of the same kind of feel as a lot of the dynamic psychotherapies. And certainly Certainly the work of people like Selma um, and the groups who have been very active in Boston and New York over the yes. last number yes. of years. Yes. Yes. The zero to the zero to the the, the, the whole field zero of zero to three and yeah, yeah. Yeah. The whole, yeah. The whole, yes. The whole group set of groups of, of parent infant psychotherapy. Yes. Yes. A lot of similarities across all yes. the work at all. Yes. What's yeah. really different about the circle, I think is that um, although more and more of them are using video tapes. Yes, and I'm trained in George Downing's video intervention therapy and and um, yes, I mean the whole, I, you're right, yeah. more and more yeah. people are using video, it's just so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, did we interrupt? I know we're running out of time though, I don't. Uh, I can take a few minutes. Much longer, <laughs> okay. My, my, next, my, my next appointment is, is one of our um, primary um, supervisors and she's aware that we may go over a little okay. bit. Okay, okay. So, so the video you were saying, and others have started using the video, and there are similarities across some of these models, but what's different about the circle is what you were about to say. Is the, is the, um, that it, I mean, George, for example, who is a, um, I love George Downing, and he and I spent a lot of time together talking about our two different systems. I, I, in one way, I think the biggest difference because he and I, when we're talking with one another, we feel we're totally on the same page. Um, the difference, sort of at a deeper level, is, is, is the circle work is really, um, it's, a, it's, uh, it's a protocol with a number of steps that you follow in order and you don't, you don't fall prey to getting out of order. You, you stay in the order of the intervention. And it is attachment theory based. Yes. And, you know, George's work, it's incredible. And Dan Stern's work, um, unfortunately he's no longer with us, but, but his work and he and George were very close. And um, you know, all these people, Ed Tronic, the whole group from starting with Barry Brazelton, he, he was kind of the, 
um, his, his, his clinic was kind of the early formation of this whole group up there. Um, and of course it's been just, it's really grown. Um, very exciting stuff. Um, we, 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 um, everybody who develops these things, we kind of stand on each other's shoulders and take pieces from each other and everything. I, I think the biggest difference is that this is a, um, is based on attachment theory. Um, yes. It's, now, it also, of course, something has happened to attachment theory and to trauma theory with kids. And that is that over the last 10 years or so, they become closer and closer together, whereas now, to where now, it's really hard to tell, okay, where's the boundary between attachment theory and trauma theory? Um, um, which, is, which is actually a wonderful thing that yes. things are all coming together. Yes. I, I think that's kind of the, um, that, that may be one of the most important differences between like George's work and um, yes. my work. Um, but I've learned so much from him um, in terms of, I mean, his is really microanalytic. Yes. The video review stuff, very microanalytic. And Dan Stern had this wonderful saying um, which was partly, of course, just Dan's, Dan's proclivity toward um, um, trying, to, um, trying to foster some, some um, to tease the whole field and to be a little bit provocative. That's the word yes. I was trying to think of. Yes. Um, that um, the most important human interactions, the most important human interactions happen in half second intervals. Mm. And that that is um, okay. Maybe it's not half second. Maybe it's only five seconds. But by golly, the most important human interactions happen in very very brief periods of time. So when we're doing the therapy, we have these things. We we get um, rather than focus on watch this ten minute period of interaction between you and your child. No, no, it's watch this. 10 second interaction yes. between you and your child. And let's look at it a dozen times. Mm -hmm. You get to the point where you know it so well. And when, when I'm doing training in this whole approach, one of the metaphors that I use is um, almost any sports team from high school on up. There's a football game on Saturday or Sunday, and there are multiple video cameras around and they, they videotape the whole thing. And then what happens the first thing Monday morning? You review it. together, And you review the videotape of the game. And the same thing happens with, with um, couples ice skating and al almost any sport. And, um, and you review the videotape and you go over it over and over and over. And you start to see things in your own pattern let's say it's football, in the pattern that you're running as you play and that your opponent is running. And you, you, you quickly develop, pretty quickly, develop the ability to see, to see things in very short. You see things that you couldn't see in real time. Yes. But you watch it almost frame by frame. Doing that multiple times over and over and over and over 
you start to see things in much shorter segments of time in real time. You can start to recognize this stuff in real time that you couldn't see before. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, as you're talking, I, I'm thinking about, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, you mentioned microanalysis of video, but I'm also thinking about um, the work we now have on interpersonal neurobiology and how these things are just so automatic and so quickly happening at these very deep levels. It's, it's almost like watching it to almost get a hint of, of what's going on at that level. Yes. And the fact, and this notion that things happen, that the most important things happen in half-second intervals. Yes. Um, um, in general, people tend to react to that with, oh, come on, come on, come on. Um, and don't buy it. Then oh. if you show, for example, um, there was a recent um, Nature or Nova program on hummingbirds. Uh-huh. And hummingbirds, as they're developing, they develop this ability, you know, they can, I mean, they can flash away so fast that it looks like they've just gone poof into the midair. Right. And the youngsters, as they're developing, um, they do a lot of dive bombing each other and they're very competitive and, they're, and they, they, they do these, they do, in a sense, a dance that happens in quarter second intervals mm -hmm. so fast mm -hmm. and they're responding to each other and they come within millimeters of hitting each other, but don't. And their brains work so fast. Well, darn it. If a hummingbird's brain can work that fast, why do we think that human brains work in such a slow rate? No, yes. Yes. Just, we're not a, we, we, these are things that organize and drive <clears throat> much of our behavior, only it's outside of our sense of awareness. Yes, and I think that um, you don't have to work with video very long to become a believer. I mean, even just sometimes a single still shot, <clears throat> you're like, you see this like bereft look on on a child or, or someone's face that that you had no idea and, and you look at that and you think wow um that just went right by me right <laughs> when i was I in can, the room <laughs> i can give you an example one of the things we work with a lot of children who are in foster care a lot of babies especially recently with all the problems with drugs um um, a lot of babies are placed in foster care at very, very young ages, like right out of the hospital from birth or at three months or six months or something like that before an attachment is formed. And then when the baby is 18 months old or two years old, maybe the father appears on the scene, the birth father appears on the scene, or maybe the mom and dad finally get their acts together and get, get um, cleaned up. And then the court wants to return, which is totally understandable, wants to return the child to the birth parents. But the child's real attachment is now to the foster parents mm -hmm. or the adoptive parents because adoptions are being reversed because the father appears and the courts are forced to um, give the child to the 
birth father. Um, and what's happening is that the, for very understandable reasons, but very unfortunate and incorrect reasons, the, 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 there's, a, there's a transition that takes place where the child spends more and more time with the birth father away from the foster parents. And the foster parents, again, for very understandable reasons, the, the birth parent does not want the foster parent there because the baby, the father, the birth, birth dad says, the baby will spend all, all of her time with the foster mom and not with me. So what happens is the baby's taken away from her attachment figure, taken away from her secure base and safe haven and put with the dad, the, the birth dad for like two to four hours at a time when she's only 14 months old, 15 months old, um, without her secure base and safe haven there, which is scary for a baby. Yes. Um, and and the, baby, the baby becomes increasingly scared. And then there's this pattern, a combination of things, um, where the baby will um, appear to be sleepy or just spacey um, will will essentially dissociate, mm -hmm. um, or the baby might be willing to play with the birth dad, but when confronted with the birth dad, the baby shows this smile. Um, the baby shows this smile that turns out actually not to be a smile. Mm. Most adults mistake it as a smile, but actually it's a fear grimace. Mm. And um, may only hold it for a few moments. And if you're not used to seeing the fear, fear and recognize the fear grimace, you think the child's absolutely fine. The baby's happy. Mm -hmm. So the person who is supervising the, the, the visitations thinks, oh, well, the baby's fine. But that's because that person doesn't know infant's behaviors. Right. Right. So we get very involved in cases like that. Yes. Um, where we actually then work with the birth dad as well. And he goes, oh my, he eventually goes, oh my God. Yeah, I can see that. And then he says, and then it's the birth dad's idea, not always, but sometimes. Mm -hmm. Why don't we have the foster parents come to the visitation? Mm, so beautiful. The visitation. That's yeah. so beautiful. And then things get much better much more quickly that yes works. that really works yes really. yes so yeah so circle of security work with fathers we haven't that's a probably a whole other subject yeah. um we haven't yeah i i don't think some of us on the outside looking in have heard as much and thought as much about that but no. so, so important my one of my mentors miriam Steele, says oh yeah miriam yeah. Yes, she says, you know, uh, what, what, that fathers are left out and whether, when one parent is securing attachment, whether it's the mother or father, it does not matter. And, you know, she said that finding is so important for us in public policy and the ways that we're leaving these fathers out, you know, we, exactly. you know, we, we just can't, must stop doing this. Right. <laughs> so right. it's great to end uh, well, and there's and there's one more thing. Speaking, yes. of Miriam, speaking yes. of Miriam, she did this incredible study 
in London, she and Howard did this incredible study. I think it's mostly Miriam's study, um, where they took prospective, these were prospective adoptive parents and did the AAIs and then followed them up six months after placement. Yes. But they did the AAIs and scored the AAIs before the child was ever placed. Yes, yes. And, and, and they found that if the parent had been classified as autonomous, then the babies, the kids were doing really well six months after placement. If the parents had been classified as either dismissing or preoccupied, then the kids did not do anywhere near as well. That that was that was a another mind blowing study for me. Yes, I read that because a lot of the work that we do is with adoptive, adoptive. Yes, parents. yes. And placement of kids into prospective foster and prospective adoptive families, and so we took a lesson from Miriam's study. Yes, um, applied yeah. it to to. Um, um, our evaluations in working to place um, kids in adoption or, or or in foster care. Yes, yes, it's a fascinating study, and another aspect that she often talks about that she calls the Solomon finding, and that is the secure mothers did okay with older children or babies. Uh, the others did not do as well with the older children. Um, and so the reason she says it's a Solomon finding, do you penalize the secure mothers by giving them older, more difficult children because they'll do better with them? <laughs> That's not the way to go necessarily, but it's, no. it's, a, it's an interesting finding no. um, to, for us to have to wrestle with. Yeah, and there are, there, it's, it's interesting. Uh, um, there are two Solomons who come into mind here. One is King Solomon, which is the one you're talking about, and the other is Judith, <laughs> um, and and Carol George, who have found that when you have um, a high conflict divorce and custody and and visitation, problematic visitation, that it not only interferes with the child's attachment to the to the um, uh, non-custodial parent, but also interferes with the child's attachment to the custodial parent. Yes, so fascinating that yeah. that marital yeah. work may help the children more than <laughs> than working with the children or some kind of yeah. parenting thing or yeah. something. Yes, yes. Well, I have okay. to be respectful of your time. I could talk to you for days. Um, this interview is everything that I had hoped for and more. And I just so appreciate you giving me um, some of your time to to share with us about. Uh -huh all of this um yeah. and if you want to do it again i'm i'm happy to um think about that and um um, um 
I hope we have the opportunity to do something like this, something together again. Yes, thank you so, so much. And um, I, I, I uh, really, really, once again, appreciate your time. So goodbye for now. Okay, goodbye for now, Karen. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. Thank you.